Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. There is a new report, well, a leaked report now that the Washington Post, uh, sorry, the uh, Wall Street Journal has reported on from the U.S. Department of Energy that suggests that COVID-19, the pandemic, most likely came from a lab leak in China, as we've heard many people speculate about, a Wuhan leak where this whole thing started not from a wet market, from a bat, but made in a lab somewhere. Now, this is this is a little bit complicated because there are some branches of the U.S. intelligence departments that say, no, no, this was a leak from a lab. There are some that say, no, this came from a wet market. There's not any an absolute view on this yet. However, I want to bring in Charles Burton. He's a senior fellow with the Center for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad at the McDonnell-Laurie Institute. Uh, Charles, thank you for doing this today. I really appreciate it. Good to speak with you, Scott. If there, well, first of all, the Department of Energy, I know that it's one of the branches. Now, I don't know how familiar you are with all of these, and this may not be a fair question to you, but in the branches of intelligence, where does it stand? I mean, there's the FBI, there's the CIA, there's all of these. Is a report by the Department of Energy something that everybody is going to stand up and take note of, or is this the little brother that is not going to really be paid much attention to? Well, Department of Energy does oversee a lot of these critical labs, so they do have some sort of inside uh, knowledge about these labs that are working with these highly uh, dangerous substances. So, you know, from that point of view, I guess there's something of a credible source. They haven't said, you know, absolutely, we know that this is it. Um, and uh, the FBI has also put out a report saying probably the the lab, I, I think, you know, from from the layman's point of view, the fact that the Chinese have not found any other explanation with regard to transmission from animals, uh, you know, whether it's uh, pangolins or something via bats, does suggest that the lab is the default position and it seems the most plausible. So, you know, that actually is sort of good news in the sense that, you know, if it did come because someone made a mistake in their in their procedures in handling these very dangerous uh, um, viruses in a lab. At least we know that. If, if it's not the lab, then the question is, how did it happen? And if it did happen through some kind of combination of, of animal-to-animal contact, we'd like to be aware of that so we can prevent something similar from happening again. So, you know, the fact the Chinese government's being so non-forthcoming about it suggests that they are feeling um, a degree of, of guilt over the fact that, you know, it, it occurred due to an error in, in a Chinese government facility, which seems the most likely thing, you know, 7 million people have died. So I think we should just sort of put national pride aside and, and come out with the, with the honest explanation so that, so that we know how to proceed from there. Okay, so let's say that at some point, somebody was able to come up with the absolute answer that we know that, you know, that China, and I, I don't expect this to happen, but China opens its doors and says, fine, we just want to clear the air here. Let's just let you search. Let's say we found out that it really did come from the lab. At this point, what would happen if that was found to be the absolute truth? Well, you know, I think that obviously there are people who are seeking compensation um, for someone responsible for what happened. And so, it could set into play a process whereby some legal action would be taken. I don't think it would be um, necessarily very successful, but you know that people are talking in this in this sort of way. I think the main issue with this is not so much that you know a mistake may have been made in that uh, in that bio lab in Wuhan, but the fact that the Chinese government may have known about it and suppressed the information and then allowed people to travel from Wuhan to countries like Canada, spreading the virus across the across the globe. You know, there's a lot of speculation that the Chinese have been more forthcoming and we put in controls earlier, we could have um, suppressed the spread and, and there would have been fewer tragic and unnecessary fatalities. But, you know, it, uh, it's, it's not so much the 
source of it, but the fact of the cover-up has is so true in so many of these kinds of things. That, uh, well, that and there was would there not also be the question, Charles, of and maybe every country, maybe all the big countries are doing this, but would there not also be the question of why was something like this in a lab that was being created? I mean, there are there is some uh, speculation about that. I mean, the there had been some concerns, evidently, about whether the Wuhan lab was meeting international standards for doing research in this kind of um, very dangerous virus. And there's also the idea that there may have been some sort of experimentation going on, which could be related to to biological weapons or something like that that went wrong. You know, we just don't have enough information to be able to to tell. I mean, you know, these kinds of viruses are subject to research under extremely controlled conditions. Um, it's unfortunate if, in fact, you know, China was engaged in unnecessary research for a possibly malevolent purpose in a lab that was not properly secured to make sure that something couldn't go wrong and the and the virus would spread out of it. Will this ever stop uh, as far as the investigations or is this going to be something that people are investigating because it's such a big deal and it's killed so many people? Will this be something people are investigating forever? Well, I think if there's any, you know, new evidence that comes out and we don't know what the new evidence is that's caused the Department of Energy to issue this statement. But I mean, you know, obviously we're going to keep looking at it and hoping to figure out what has caused um, COVID-19. And of course, if it if they can demonstrate some cause that takes the the lab out of the equation, great, you know, but so far we're not seeing anything. And and I, I just think that the Chinese government's, you know, heavy-handed attempts at cover-up and dissembling, you know, suggesting that it really came from Fort Detrig, a military facility in the United States, and this other mm-hmm. nonsense, suggests that, you know, maybe they, 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 they know that it's come out of the lab, and they, at this stage, they're just in so deep that they're not prepared to tell us. And maybe if there was some political change in China, a new government would come clean. Um, you know, I hope that eventually we'll we'll get the truth behind COVID-19 because it's so important in this emerging world where these kind of viruses may come out to the fore again and again. See, I, I agree with what you said a few moments ago where you say there could be people seeking payment or some sort of uh, recompense for this. However, I, I, I'm not sure that even if China was, even if people were to say, we're going to sign a document saying we will not come after China. And I mean, how would you gather all these people? But you know what yeah. I mean? If everyone said, sure. we're not going to come after you for money, I'm still not sure China would even want this to come out, even if it could clear the air because you've got the embarrassment that forget the money, the embarrassment is still there or worse. Yeah. And it's the whole thing about, you know, what's the basis for the Chinese Communist Party's political rule? You know, they're not a legitimate regime. They haven't been elected by a free and fair election. And so, you know, they're very sensitive about making any errors. The Chinese Communist Party, when I lived in China many years ago, you know, described itself on the masthead of the People's Daily Newspaper, their official newspapers, great, glorious and correct. And so they're (laughs) very, very hesitant to admit any mistakes. I mean, you know, a most obvious mistake was their whole policy of, massive lockdowns, which has had unbelievably negative effects on the development of the economy. When they eventually abandoned it, they did it so suddenly that, you know, hospitals weren't able to make the preparations to look after the sudden surge in illness. But then, you know, they had a surge in illness and it it worked through the population and it really had the same effect as it would have had if they hadn't had these you know, draconian, brutal lockdowns that they imposed on people because they thought they could they could um, contain a force of nature through a direction of the Chinese Communist Party that everyone should stay inside. That is Charles Burton uh, from the McDonnell Laurie Institute, who, by the way, is great and glorious and correct, except he doesn't make us call him that, so that makes it actually <laughs> accurate. Charles, thanks for doing this today. Really appreciate it. Good to speak with you. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. It's one of the stories that I really thought when I first heard it from the Globe and Mail last week that this was going to be one of the biggest stories we were going to read in a long, long time because in a democracy, the one thing you have to believe in 
is that voting matters. It's why in the States for years, while Donald Trump was president, the idea of Russian collusion was a story that dominated the headlines. Whether you think it happened, whether you don't, whether you think that thing called the Steele dossier was real or not, regardless, Russian interference into American politics was enormous. And so when we heard from the Globe and Mail, a very reliable, credible source, that it had seen documents classified documents from CSIS, our intelligence agency, pointing out that China had interfered in our election, essentially exactly what the states was dealing with with Russia, except in this case, we had the National Security Agency saying, yes, this happened. I thought this is going to be huge. And then within about two days, it seemed that it lost a lot of its steam. Now, when people are asking the Prime Minister if we're going to have an inquiry into this to make sure that our democracy is untouched and unscathed, he's saying no. And then today when he was requested or when he was when he was asked questions about a an MP who apparently um, that was one of the writings China was targeting, um, the suggestion was that if you ask about this, you're racist. It's a good defense, I suppose, because who wants to be racist? They're bringing Stephen LaDrew. Stephen is the host of the three-minute interview. You can find it on YouTube. He's also the former president of the Liberal Party of Canada. He's a political analyst. He joins us now. Stephen, how are you today? I am very well. Very interested in what you were saying as the intro to this because it says an awful lot about Canadians these days. Well, as I say, the states, people down in the states got tied up in knots on this for four, five years. Some of them still are. And we lasted probably about 72 hours, if that. And then it seemed like, ah, what's the big deal? Well, I, I think that in the States, it lasted because the president of the United States kept saying it was true. And there, to my knowledge, I read a lot of American news, there never really came much evidence of what it was in the States. Now, in Canada, we're far more concentrated. We have our prime minister saying there's nothing to it. Uh, he said, the CSIS reports, well, there's more information. I read that. I said, well, where's he getting it from? I mean, he doesn't get any intelligence reports aside from uh, CSIS. Now, he may have some of his woke friends say, well, there's nothing to it, but he doesn't have any information to deny that. And, of course, he goes back to his old divide. And heretofore, he's been conquering Canada by dividing Canadians, saying, well, if you... If you uh, believe this about Hong Kong in uh, uh, Don Valley in, in, in Toronto, then you're a racist. Well, CSIS says it's true, and uh, now the liberal commentators, I've read this afternoon, are saying, well, there's nothing wrong with people coming in and helping in other elections. And one person said, we have Canadians that go down to help in American elections. And yes, yes, we have a few liberals who go down to join democratic politics come back and think they're big shots and and uh we've read about them some of them have columns and they just think they're so smart this is not at all like this this is when we're dealing with chinese nationals telling chinese citizens in canada how to vote that's not individuals that chinese nationals coming in here doing that that's the chinese communist government yeah, and Stephen, if influence. Stephen, if this was the other way around, and we always do this in politics, if this was if the shoe was on the other foot, if Pierre Polyev was prime minister, and we learned after he had been elected that China had helped him get elected, I I, I am quite certain that P, that to Justin Trudeau and the rest of the Liberals would be losing their collective minds, and justifiably so, I would say. I, I would I would I would hope they would be upset with that. And yet well, you, we're supposed to just not care, I guess. Well, Scott, you know that uh, Canadians have been duped by Trudeau for uh, for eight years now. And yes, Trudeau does he says one thing and does another. And you're absolutely right. Were he in opposition, he'd be going squirrely about this. But uh, And he'd be asking for transparency, asking for an inquiry, asking to get to the bottom of this so Canadians can see the truth. Now that he's Prime Minister, all those calls for transparency and openness in government have fallen upon deaf ears. This is just like everything else he's done in eight years. No inquiry. We don't need to get to the truth of this. And he's maligning our own security service by saying, well, they're wrong. How does he know they're wrong? As I said to you earlier in the show, 
he has no basis to say that except for he wants them to be wrong. So it is a mess. I uh, I hope that uh, the Globe and other uh, journalists get down to it. I mean, Robert Fight, Bob Fight, who led this for the Globe, excellent the, journalist. Oh, he's an experienced guy, and he doesn't give a rat's ass, frankly, that the Globe gets some money from the Prime Minister's office, which it does. The other papers, like uh, the Toronto Liberal Star and CTV and CBC, they get money from this government, so they aren't going to be pursuing that. That's one of the differences between Canada and the rest of the world, is that our government has been paying the news services, and they don't want to go after this government. So it's a very difficult situation, but it's a situation I think that uh, Fife is going to keep alive and that uh, Canadians are going to start saying, boy, this thing really smells. Now, now, when you were giving your intro, something occurred to me, Scott. I'm wondering whether Canadians are becoming like Ontarians in, what was it, 1995. Bob Ray was the premier. He had to have yep. an election. He said he's going to win re-election. Canadians just sort of, you know, they were just sort of wandering along. They'd already made their mind up. They said, this guy stinks, and he's out. Maybe that's could why be. Canadians are not, are not so upset about this. They, they could, be or could, be, could be or could be fatigued just with the number of different stories that are out there. The, the other one that's so puzzling to me, though, is that uh, earlier today, Jagmeet Singh, leader of the NDP, uh, said he thinks that there should be an inquiry, a public inquiry, into the alleged Chinese election interference. He's joined with others. Jagmeet right. Singh literally, and I'm not saying, I, I'm not using the word literally improperly here like a lot of people do. He literally holds all the cards because if he were to say to the prime minister, if you don't call an inquiry, we are pulling our support and that will kill your government. We'll be going back to the polls. Jagmeet right. Singh literally could make this happen. And yet, correct. why in the world do you come out and say, I demand a public inquiry? and then not follow it up with the threat to make it happen. Jagmeet has now established himself as somebody who likes to make headlines, might, likes to make demands, such as he made, as you pointed out, but he doesn't have the guts to carry it out because he knows he's going to be just toasted in the next election, and he likes the position now as being uh, you know, the, the water carrier for the government. Yeah, and I mean, I suppose that he recognizes, I, I would assume, he recognizes that if he were to force an election and he then never has the power that he does right now, I would assume. That's right. That's right. He's a water carrier right now, but he won't be after the next election. And the other thing, though, there's, there is a problem with a, a public inquiry is that we are dealing with, we are dealing with uh, spies. You know? I mean, the whole business is undercover. And part of it should never see the light of day because Canada already is in a very difficult position with our former international allies. We used to be, I used to, I used to be part of that 40 years ago. I was part of drafting a thesis. I know the business. We used to be highly respected in the world, the five sisters, which is Britain, United States, New Zealand, Australia, Canada. Now Canada is viewed as a very weak sister is even a sister at all because we have a prime minister who blabs and we have a very, very poor government. If we had inquiry into this, our sources of information, which protect our country, would be dried up completely because no one is, uh, no ally is going to deal with um, a security service which is chock full of holes. So it would be good to have an inquiry, for instance, into that specific riding in Toronto. And see if the Chinese government did have people coming in. And uh, I've heard of it before. You probably have, Scott. You know, there's people lined up to vote. They pull their sleeve up their arm. They see the name there. <laughs> they don't speak English. And they see it in English. They look at the ballot and they check it. They walk out. They get their money. Uh, I, you and know, we've got to run. But I, the, yeah, the, the other thing about a public inquiry, and I'll, and I'll say this, and, and you know, after the last one we just had about the Freedom Convoy, uh, I, I don't seeing how people responded to the results of that. 
those who supported the government beforehand supported it wholeheartedly when that result came out from uh, Justice Rolu. And those who didn't support it thought that the report was a sham and it was a rigged and everything else. I'm not sure that having any kind of public inquiry into Chinese interference is actually going to do anything because I don't think anyone changes their opinion. So let's just have the evidence out through newspapers and talk radio and people can make their minds up. Stephen LaDrew, always appreciate it. Thanks for doing this. It's been too long. Always a pleasure. Thank you. See you, John. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let me bring in a guy. I don't know if he's driving. Well, he's not driving right now. I don't know if he was driving, but um, we'll, we'll see if he's uh, huffing and puffing and sounding traumatized from the road that was out there. Don Robertson, the owner and operator of the Dundas Real McCoys and Calm Choice Realty, and a very large four-wheel drive pickup truck. So he's probably fine. Sir, how are you today? <laughs> I'm good, Scott. It's a little, uh, a little snowy, though. Eh? It's, I hope people are all right. I, I came home about 3.30 to find my truck needed a boost because I got to get up at 5.30 and plow. But uh, anyway, we'll get that figured out. It looks like there'll be lots to plow. I wouldn't want to be out now. You can't see. No, and, and the best part is that according to the weather, we're going to have kind of a repeat of what we had last Wednesday and Thursday. So if you don't get out and shovel in the next little while, the rain will start and then it will weigh 12 trillion pounds and freeze over and just be an iceberg at the end of your street. It's, it's, it's perfect. It's really, it's all we've ever wanted, Don. It really is. Well, it is. I'm not that proficient at uh, my new plow on the pickup yet. WPE did a good job setting it up for me but i must have lost the instruction manual so i uh i gotta repair some grass i've yanked up already and everything else it does get the job done now i I need a landscaper it's because it hasn't frozen right so and i'm a bad snow plower but i'm getting the hang of it at least i did mine before i did the neighbors holy cow anyway um it'll it'll be uh, fine i hope people are home because you and I talked. I was going to come into the station again till I <coughs> left Dundas and drove into a whiteout and went. I'd better just go home and get that. This truck is a good day. Yeah, Don't worry about good day to good day to call it in. Plus, you got home probably in time then to see that the Maple Leafs had made another big trade. And I wonder about this. You're a guy who's been in hockey for years. You're a guy who's been a manager of hockey teams. Now, I, I I'm not going to say it's the NHL. It's not, but nonetheless, it's. You've been around the game enough that I wonder when you look at what Kyle Dubas is doing right now with the Leafs, and he is clearly looking like he's going all in here. I mean, they are putting tons of the future into this. And would you have the, what word do we want to use, the snowballs to go this hard knowing that maybe for the next few years it could be trickier? Would you be comfortable going this aggressively into a trade deadline? Well, I've I've never been in a position um, at trade deadline um, with any hockey team to have to worry about my job for next year because I've never had the pressure to have to win, mostly because we win a lot. But um, last year, you know, you can't trade the future and you, you can't make deals because you got to make sure you have success. Now it's all about balance and everything else. That was the hymn book he was singing from last year. And this year he doesn't have a contract next year. And I think that they should play that tape back to him because he's clearly forgot about that. And he knows that his butt's on the line. If they get booted in the first round, he's done. And Brendan Shanahan, I'm sure, has to sign off on all these deals. His future would not be particularly bright if they get bounced in the first round. So those guys are acting like, if we don't win now, we don't have jobs. And Dubas is young. His track record is, you know, he's got a pretty good hockey team there. There's no question about that. But I don't know how quickly he gets snapped up by another NHL team. So... Oh, and see, I think he would. I think he would. And and first of all, first of all, I think the biggest the part of the reason I asked the question about would you have the guts to do that or the stomach to do that is they're in a division 
with Tampa and with Boston. Boston is having a historically great season. Tampa has been to the finals three years in a row and knows how to win in the playoffs. Two of those teams are not getting out of the second round. And you just wonder, you know, when you go all in on this one, yeah, it's, 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 you, I'm sure the Leafs, well, the Leafs do have an excellent team right now. They have a fantastic team right now. They may have, they may have the most star power and the best team. I was going to say since 67, certainly since they have 76 with Sittler and McDonald and Salming and, um, you know, those guys, Errol Thompson and others. Certainly they've got as much more star power since then. But be, when you look at what's looming for you in your division, that's the part that would make me skittish. Well, I didn't answer your question, apparently. Yes, I would do what he's doing. Because um, that was a yes or no question. So, yeah, I'd do it. I'd have the stomach to do it because you have to do it. And he owes it to the fans. And if he's got an opportunity... But you're right, he's given up chunks of the future to do it. And here's the scary part. Um, not only do they have to beat Boston or Tampa in the first round, they have to beat Boston or Tampa in the second round. Yep. I mean, it's no walk in the park the first two rounds in the division they're in. Right? No. And if, if it turns into being a war, now you got to look at injuries and everything else. And uh, the third round's no... You know, no easy task any year. So no, well, Carolina we got a tough division. Look at look at the NHL standings overall. Boston is first, Carolina second, New Jersey third, Toronto fourth, Tampa fifth, New York sixth. The Rangers. So you get out of your you're oh, you're going to play Tampa in the first round. So you're the fourth place team playing the fifth place team. You win that, you're going to play the first place team. You win that, chances are you're playing the second or third or sixth place team. You haven't got out of the top six to get to the finals. And meanwhile, Vegas is the top-ranked West Confer- Western Conference team, and they're seventh overall. And they could very easily play two or three soft-touch teams, essentially, before they got to the finals. Like It's unbelievable how it lines up this year. Yeah, it is. And... And, and every, you know, not everybody, but many are talking about the Rangers might be favored to win the Stanley Cup. And I look at it and go, why? Like, if you, if you take a pure look at the matchups that you just laid out, I would think whoever comes out of the West will be the most unscathed team standing. Um, because they're not the, uh, the, the caliber of hockey. And the type of play uh, teams they got to play will not be close to what the East is going to have to go through to decide who's going to represent them. So the West should have a leg up on anybody they face, just based on your analysis there. Yeah, no, no, it's it, it is really um, it's remarkable if you're an Eastern team, if you're Dubas, if you are any of these teams. Once again. Uh, Boston first, Carolina second, New Jersey third, Toronto fourth, Tampa fifth, New York Rangers sixth, all East teams, all would be, if the Leafs were somehow to make it to the Stanley Cup finals, it, you would, it would be a safe bet to say that you're going to have to beat three of the teams in the top six overall in the league before you got to the finals, where the finals would be your easiest series, which is crazy. Yeah, and well, you know, I have said, and I'm not alone in this, that um, lots of times the best playoff series are the first round all across the board. Uh, it's the best hockey, it's the cleanest hockey, and you can get some great matchups. And uh, so the finals aren't always, it's the same as every sport, I guess. The NFL, I mean, some of the best playoff games don't happen to be the Super Bowl game, but they could be but it's not necessarily going to be the case. And if you're a hockey fan and you want to watch some decent hockey, watch the Eastern playoffs because it's, it's going to be pretty cool. Well, and you touch on it, Don. I mean, look, if, if I'm, if I'm on the West and I'm looking in at this, uh, one thing I'm pretty confident about is if I can make it to the finals, whoever comes out of the East is going to be a mess. They are going to be beat up. With it, with these kind of teams that you're going to have to beat, the team that comes out of the West, it's going to be like coming home from summer camp. Well, yeah, I uh, 
I'm really uh, talking about the NHL playoffs. I'm I'm really kind of sad that Arizona isn't going to probably make a run in the playoffs because I'm pretty sure they could sell that building out for some of the games. Like they they got to be able to get five thousand people for a playoff. <laughs> Well, this this goes back now. People are going to say, "Well, it's just because it's the Leafs." No, no, I, I've been saying this for a long, long, long time. This goes back. I believe the NHL should be re- doing way more to reward regular season play, and I am a huge proponent of. I don't think I I couldn't care less who the two teams are in the Stanley Cup final. I don't care if one is from the East and one is from the West. I've never Don said. You know what? I, I I need to see if the Leafs were to get there. I need to see a team from the West facing there. I, I'd be very happy if it was the Leafs and the Canadians or the Leafs and whoever else. Um, I would love for the NHL to go back to the one versus sixteen, two versus fifteen formula for the playoffs, and that to me does so much more to make the regular season matter. So much more. Because the Leafs, has, I've known they've been playing Tampa for months now, along with a bunch of the other rosters. You, you, the jockeying for position, the chance to get a better playoff situation if it's one versus sixteen, and then the the benefit of getting a softer touch, so you don't have to go through what they'll get, what they're going to have to go through. I think the NHL's playoff system is unquestioned in my mind by far the worst in sports. And that's saying something when you consider major league baseball and all their stupid wild cards they've got now. Yeah. I, I think with uh, everybody takes charter jets now and the athletes are in such good shape. Um, you, you wouldn't, it's not like you're going to be burdened with um, two New York teams in New Jersey playing against San Jose, LA and um, uh, Phoenix. Right. So, I mean, it's not going to happen every year. You're going to get a little bit of it, but you're not going to get a full dose of it. So it'll be a little taxing. But one of the teams, like if Boston are playing the last place team in the West, ask them if they'd rather do that than be somebody like the Leafs or, you know, another real good hockey team. They go, I take the travel, uh, so I'm not playing a top team right off the bat. So would yep, Tampa, nope. so would the Leafs. So, so would anybody. It, They'd say... You know, we got to go to the West Coast, or we got to go to Chicago, we got to go to Nashville. But at least we're not playing one of the, as you mentioned, the Leafs could may well have to win series against um, three series against top six teams to get to the Stanley Cup Finals, and that can be considered as cruel and unusual punishment. Versus if Boston had to play Anaheim, who was sixteenth, for example. You know what? I'll take I'll take I'll take playing Anaheim and I'll put up with the flights. I'll figure this out on my own. I think I think they'd be happy to do it. Don, let's stick with hockey for just a second because we got the trade deadline coming up. We've been talking about the Leafs and trades, other teams all making trades. But there are a bunch of teams that have been holding players out for what they're now. This is the new thing. This is Pat Quinn created the upper body injury. And then Kawhi Leonard and, uh, created the load management. And now we've got the held out for trade-related purposes or trade-related reasons. And you've got players who are completely healthy on a certain team not playing. And not just for a day because a trade is being consummated. Five games, six games not playing under trade-related reasons. And the reason I ask about this is, frankly, I mean, you mentioned Arizona. They're doing with this, this with Jacob Chikrin. I couldn't care less about Arizona as a team. They are a non-factor as a hockey team, as a hockey franchise, as a hockey fan base, as a hockey venue. doesn't matter. Except when you sit out your best player for six games at a time when everybody is trying to tank and get a legendary, not legendary, a generational player in the draft. Are you not being allowed by the league to tank when they say there's no tanking going on? Well, I I think uh, Phoenix have come up with a creative way to tank. And I'm actually surprised that Batman is permitting this um, because for a number of reasons, many of which are um, Phoenix play on the road, Phoenix play at home. I mean, they don't have, they don't, they don't have to put a lot of people in to, to play at home. Um, 
but people people spend a lot of money to buy those tickets. Phoenix is not exactly the Oilers of the 80s to start with. So when you start sitting out your best player for multiple games for obvious reasons, that's really not fair to your customers that are paying two, three, four, five hundred bucks a ticket. Like Phoenix are no oil painting to start with, and then they sit their best player. I'm really surprised from a business standpoint that the NHL are allowing this to happen. Patrick Kane didn't play on the West Coast. Uh, or Chicago using that trade um, mechanism to find a way to lose some more games. Um, I don't know. I, 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 I think it's bad business, and I'm surprised the NHL are putting up with it. Well, so Arizona right now is five points out of the basement. So they are, you will never convince me they are not desperately trying to get down, even if it's not to the number one spot, at least a number two from the bottom or three to enhance their draft chances. And you're right. I'm surprised the league has not stepped in and said, you must play a guy unless he is to be traded. And you can prove to us that a trade was... You know, right? Yeah. So, so if you're going to sit a guy, you have to call the league office and say, here's what we're working on. And here's the other general manager's number. You call and check and see if we're talking about this guy something. But it just, it just seems absolutely transparently like trying to lose. Yeah, well, like I said, I, I think it's bad business. Um, guys like Gretzky used to play, and he'd play hard every night if he was only going into uh, New York Islanders once that year. He knew a lot of people bought the tickets to come and see him. Superstars like him and Hull and, you know, or those guys of that, they all know what they are, so they have to try and give it every night because people come to watch him. And Phoenix don't have a lot of good players, so when you sit out your best player, it's, yeah, it's a little bit of a challenge, and it's unfair, and I repeat myself, it's bad for business. So what's to stop a team next year who, by November, they're out of it? There's always one or two teams that, by November, they've already lost any chance of making the playoffs. There's just no hope. What's to stop them from sitting four guys and saying this is trade-related purposes they're still being paid i mean i suppose the players union could grieve it at some point but they would have to get involved but by the time that they got involved you may have been able to lose enough games to enhance your chances yeah i it's i'm surprised the other teams aren't squawking to be honest with you you know now now the interesting thing is and one, one of the things the nhl did which is probably a good idea you're not guaranteed the first pick if you're in last place. You enhance your chances, but it's not a guarantee. But if you're in the bottom three, you've got a real shot at Bedard. And, but again, it goes back to people are buying tickets to come watch this. I don't know what the answer to this is because you don't want the league, I don't think, um, getting too tied up in the up in the day-to-day operation of the team. And, you know, you don't want that kind of meddling from the league. I mean, heaven knows with Arizona, there's that's kind of what it is. They've just kept that place afloat. But nonetheless, um, you're right about Patrick Kane. Now, it looks like Kane is being traded. I don't know. How, I can't remember how many games he's missed. Two? Did he miss two games? Uh, you know. Missed one, missed one anyway. All right. Um you know, Montreal, who knows if they are, I mean, they've had some guys go with surgeries suddenly that, you know, you wonder if they would actually be having the surgery. But that's, see, that to me is at least realistic. If you can show that a guy went and actually had his body cut into by a scalpel, all right, I, I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll grant you, I'll grant you that one. I'll say, okay, you can, you can use that as an excuse. Um, 
I don't know. Somehow, though, it just seems the league has to do something about this. And and I, I truly believe they've been caught. It's been caught completely off guard because this was brand new. No, I, I don't remember hearing this. It's like polar vortex. All of a sudden, it's just one of those words that's in the vocabulary. I don't remember trade-related reasons ever before this year. I would, I would have to think that there's something in the Constitution of the National Hockey League that you have an obligation to play your best players uh, when available. I mean, I, I mean, you, you would think you wouldn't have to have that in the Constitution. And if it's not in the Constitution, watch for the change to insert it this year. So, because you're right, they're not even hiding it. They're saying, you know, we might trade this guy, so we basically we don't want him to get hurt. Because then we won't be able to trade him. So we're going to sit him till we can figure out where he's going to go. What will look absolutely terrible uh, for Phoenix in the NHL is if he doesn't get traded. Imagine if well, he sits eight yeah. games and doesn't go anywhere. Yep. And you've lost six of those, and that's really helped you. Now, the flip side is, and this is why you don't want the league, I don't think, getting too involved, which is making this very complicated. What if the league were to say, okay, Arizona – You've sat him long enough. He's got to play. And he goes into the game and blows out his knee. Then, you know, now the league has forced the team to play a guy and it's cost them their future. So it like it's it's it is it's tricky on how you would do this unless you put in a rule ahead of time that said maximum number of games you can sit for this purpose is. But then you just won't sit him for that. You'll sit him, you'll you'll say, well, he's got a slight hamstring tug. Like one way or another, they yeah, can least, find a way to keep the guy out. But at least they can get creative enough to lie about it. Now, when you talk about if they put that kid from Phoenix in and he gets hurt and they hurt their future, actually, if, if they put him in and he gets hurt, they're probably going to secure their future because he's not going to play. Now he's out because he's hurt because they're not making the playoffs. Yeah, I, I, I don't know what to do with this. I just, I, the whole idea to me just stinks. It just, it, it just, it's legalized tanking. And honestly, if, if nothing is done, in my mind, if nothing is done about this this year, every team over the offseason will look at this and go, okay, if we get into that position, here's what we're going to do. And now there's not going to be a Connor Bedard next year necessarily. So maybe it's no maybe maybe we're just looking at an unusual year because there's such a high profile prospect that is the gift for one of the teams there. But boy, it's um, it's it's just it's not a good with, scenario. They got to come up with something because there'll be another Bedard. It, it may at some be point, three years. It might be might be fourteen years. You can't just say ah, I don't see this ever happening again, and then boom, it happens, right? Because you don't know when McDavid and Bedard are going to come along because those kids right now, they're only 13 years old. If that. Right? You don't know how old they are. Like, I mean, there might be five generational players right now that are 12 years old across the world, and you have one of those drafts and go, well, you really can't screw up. If you take any one of these four guys. Uh, Don Robertson with me as he is every Monday. And Don, on a night like this, it only makes sense to talk baseball uh, because I know that's what everybody is thinking about right now. Uh, with spring training is going now and we are starting to see the very big, the first games of the Grapefruit League and the Cactus League and the impact of the pitch clock that baseball, Major League Baseball is bringing in this year where a pitcher has 20 seconds to throw a pitch if there's a man on base, 15 seconds if there's nobody on base. What are your thoughts on this? What, what do you think about the idea of baseball, a sport that always has been not on a clock? It's the one that moved at whatever pace the game moved at. It was sometimes very exciting, sometimes very languid, but sort of moved as it did. It now has a clock and you will be forced to keep up with it. What do you think about the idea? Well, my thought process would be, every, I mean, one one of the apparent reasons that baseball is losing uh, the younger generation uh, is because they're so used to everything happening so quickly. They, they get their news on Twitter and everything's so instantaneous. So people don't have the patience to want to 
go to the ballpark, have a beer and a hot dog and sit around the sun and, you know, enjoy the afternoon. Everybody wants more immediate results. And I think baseball is probably the sport that just kind of legs along and it's like, you know, you can go and get fries and a beer and a hot dog between pitches. And it's, I mean, it's just a long, slow game. And if they want to speed it up, I think their alternatives were like zero other than this one. Like, I don't know what you do. I mean, it's the only thing that I could think of that they have in their toolbox to speed the game up. And that's not let pitchers stand there and, and uh, talk to the ball. I mean, can you imagine Mark the Bird Fedrich? He used to repair the mound behind, uh, you know, between the, the mound and the second base. He was like sometimes 15, 20 minutes. You could actually go home and get your own beer and come back and before he threw another pitch. But I think they they have no alternatives to speed the game up except that and keep the batter in the batter box. Yeah, you know, I, I, I agree with you. I, and I think that that's exactly the reason why, and I think it makes some sense. I just, watching it, they, they, they put it this way, the concept of it makes all the sense in the world. I, I And... I get why they wanted to do this, and I get why they would. But watching it a little bit, I'm not sure that it works as well as the concept might have suggested. Maybe my thought will change as I see more games and it hurries things along and it becomes a lot faster. But what I've seen so far, and it's a very, very, very small sample size, is I'm not sure. I think, though, Scott, it's going to be like an awful lot of rules that are new. Especially, I mean, this is this is a pretty significant change for baseball to adapt a clock. I mean, it is truly the only major league sport that has no clock. Yeah, there's not four quarters, right? There's not three periods. It's the only game without a clock, and now it has a clock. So for traditionalists. They're going to bitch and moan and say, oh, you're ruining the game and everything else. And you know what? They don't care about those guys. They don't care about a guy like me that says, leave it alone. Because they got me. It's, you know, grandkids and kids and everything else that are losing attention. You know, when parents take uh, seven, eight, and a nine-year-old to the game and they want to play on their phone rather than watch the game because it's boring, they're going to lose those guys. They're not going to want to go to the ballpark like you and I might have wanted to go. So it's not about keeping the traditionalists happy. It's about making sure that they can grow the game and speed it up so the next generation want to go to the ballpark and watch the game. That's what uh, I agreed. The risk that is run, and I don't know if it's a risk or not, is it, what happens if the younger people who are saying, this is too slow for me, if this is not the thing that brings them to the park? Because I remember back in 2015 when the Blue Jays hadn't won in a long time and they made the trades and they got super hot and they were into the playoffs. That place was absolutely humming. Every night it was full and the crowd was young and it seemed that it wasn't the pitch clock or the lack of a pitch clock that was the problem. It was the lack of winning and the lack of an exciting team. Once you put those two things together, everybody, no matter what their age was, was happy to be at the ballpark. So what happens if... It's not the speed of the game. What happens if that doesn't bring people back and you've then perturbed those who have been your diehard, long-standing fans who don't want the game moving at this pace? They want it a little more relaxed so you can sit on your porch and listen to it on a radio in the summer or whatever else. I don't know. I, I, I And I don't know that that would necessarily happen, Don. I don't know that diehards are going to be ticked off by this or if they're going to be just fine with it. I don't know. Well, they're going to be ticked off, but there's nothing baseball can do about it. That means they have to do something, and that's the only available thing I see for them to be able to do. Now, if and you're absolutely right. When the Jays have the uh, Sky Dome full, Rogers Center full, it's a hop in place. It doesn't matter about the pitch count. The problem is they have 30 teams in baseball, and they generally only have half a dozen at the top. So you got to drag people out to Cleveland uh, to watch yeah. a ball game, and you got to drag them out to Baltimore. And the last thing they likely want to do is say, you know, we're not going to win, and we're going to be there for four hours. So if we're going to go support our team, they will get better. 
but I'm not investing four hours on a Saturday and Sunday on a Tuesday night to go watch them play when they're crap anyway. So at least get me in and out in two and a half hours. Maybe then I'll go. I yeah, and the other thing, thing, the other thing about it, as we're talking, my thought was, well, you know, so make it so that if two teams are out of the playoff run, out of the playoff mix, you know what? We just we keep it to seven innings and just move it along this way. But the problem there is baseball and stats are so tied together, and it's such an integral part of the game that you can't even do that. You can't tweak something to hurry things along for, you know, if you're in Baltimore, as you say, and the team is terrible, you can still come out and you still have a good time. We won't make you stay here all afternoon. But, uh, but again, I don't know that I don't know that there's another way we'll see maybe, you know, Don, I'm keeping an open mind on this one. My, my initial look at it was not loving it, but you know what? Maybe when you watch this for a month, we're going to say, how did we ever do this without that? This just makes the game go so much faster. Well, you know the other thing they can do? They, they, can, they can stop it. They could, although I don't think you would see it stopped mid-season because I think there will be teams that will have pitching staffs that will probably excel based on their training regimens and everything else. I know there's uh, – now I'm drawing a blank on his name, and I'll, he'll forgive me hopefully in a second. Um, there's a guy from Hamilton who's gone to work for the Chicago Cubs as their – baseball scientist and one of the main things that he is doing is working with the team to help the pitchers prepare for the pitch clock so that their cardio and everything else so the teams that have invested there may be teams that find their pitching staffs do really well with this and others that their pitching staffs really suffer well you can't stop at mid-season and penalize those that prepared well no, no, and they won't they won't do it mid-season I mean they'll give this thing two or three years and if it backfires on them but they can pivot. And if you want to know that kid's name, look in the spec. Uh, There's a great column in there about him. Yeah, no, thanks. Uh, Don, thanks for doing this, as always. Love having you on on Monday nights. Thanks for the time. Thanks, Scott. Talk to you soon. We will indeed. That is Don Robertson. You can uh, you can catch his team, the Dundas Real McCoys. They uh, Go look up their website and find out when they play. They, uh, they're well worth dropping in on. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.